Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Space, the final frontier. Yes, these are the words of the fictional character, Captain James T. Kirk. But they do ring true. Space, our universe, is something that inspires wonder and curiosity. For as long as we humans have been around, we've been looking into the night sky and wondering, what does it mean? What else is out there? And now, in 2023, it's fair to say that we are in a new era of space exploration. July 12th marked one year since NASA released the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Those images showed our universe in more detail than ever before. And the power of the Webb Telescope is being used by researchers right here in Nashville. Later this hour, we'll talk with local astronomers about exoplanets, supermassive black holes, gravitational waves, and beyond. But first, Nashville is truly never really dark. When the sun sets, there's an artificial glow that blocks out most of the stars above and disrupts the lives of animals below, including us. This is what is called light pollution. And our environmental reporter, Caroline Egger, says the city is about to confront one of its worst culprits. She joins us now. Hey, Caroline. Hey. So what is that exactly is the city doing to combat this problem? Yeah, so they're planning to replace uh, more than 50,000 street lamps with LEDs. And they're going to be using smart LEDs, so they should be able to remotely control the brightness. They can turn them on and off. And um, a big part of the project is that they're going to be installing light fixtures to actually help point the light down instead of just letting it bleed all over the place. Okay, but you know, I thought that LEDs were even brighter. Uh, yeah, they certainly can be. <laughs> so hmm. the city will be real, need to be really careful when they're setting the brightness. Um, but also, you know, we've learned that the color is so important. Like LEDs tend to be more blue, whereas like, you know, the traditional incandescents were more orange. And blue light can be more problematic is what the research has been showing in more recent years. So they, the city told me that they're going to be picking a dark Sky compliant is the industry term for, okay. you know, um, having the appropriate color. But yeah, that'll be something to look out for. All right. So what made the city decide to do this now? Um, so I'm not really sure about the timeline, but why they're doing this is because they're going to save a lot of money because mm -hmm. LEDs use less energy. So what's the how long will a project like this take to complete citywide? Yeah, so the city's saying it is going to take five years, and they're planning on doing about 20% each year. Did they identify an area where they're going to start? Uh, I don't know that. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll keep an eye on that. How, I mean, so what other cities have really made, already made this switch to LED lights? Yeah, so there's examples all over the world. Um, what comes to mind most immediately is Los Angeles. Um, because they did this back in 2014, so they were pretty early adopters, and they were a really good case study to show why this blue light, um, why it was just so disruptive, that they really didn't actually reduce their light pollution in their switch. So hopefully we can learn from their their mistakes. Okay, I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty curious. Like, how will the night sky in Nashville look after the transition is done? Like, tell us, what does 
a proper night sky look like? Well, I don't think anyone knows what Nashville is going to look like yet, but I can speak to uh, what a proper night sky can look like. Uh, if you get really, really far out of the city, I mean, you can see the Milky Way. In a real, I read recently that in a true proper night sky, it would be hard to pick out things like the Big Dipper, the things that we, you know, most of mm -hmm. us have seen, but <laughs> because there would be so many stars. You know, when I lived in New Mexico, we would often go to Taos that has very little light pollution and look at the Milky Way and gaze at the stars. And it's truly, if no one out there has done it, give yourself an opportunity. It's an image that I don't think you'll ever forget. I know I won't. But, but tell us, why is having a proper dark sky, why is that so important for us? Yeah, so light controls really everything on the planet. It affects all of us. And having dark skies, like that's how our bodies were designed <laughs> to regulate with light. So it really disrupts um, the lives of all of our animals to have the light pollution at night. But also, I mean, if you're just thinking when you do have that experience, when you're out there, you're looking at the Milky Way, like you feel so much more connected to the universe, to the environment around you. I just think it's really, a lot of people think, you know, it's just really important for us to have that greater sense of connection. Yeah, and I'm sure it helps with our circadian rhythms as well. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Caroline Eggers is WPLN's environmental reporter. You can find the link to her story at thisisnashville.org. Caroline, thanks for this and happy stargazing. <laughs> you too. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with local astrophysicists about some of the big breakthroughs in research being led right here in our city. Do you have questions about the universe? You can ask us by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. When NASA published some of the first images taken by the James Webb Space Telescope, people across the world were in awe. I know I was. Never have we seen the universe, our universe, in such detail and clarity. We've been able to see thousands of new galaxies like never before some older than anything previously observed by humans. The telescope even gave us a closer look at the birthplace of stars in the Pillars of Creation from the famous Eagle Nebula. The potential for new discoveries is nearly limitless, and some of the most exciting astronomical research is going on that is going on right now is being led right here in Nashville. To talk more about this, I'd like to introduce my next guests, both from Vanderbilt University. Kayvon Stassen is professor of physics and astronomy and computer science, and Stephen Taylor is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and chair of the Nanograv Group. Kayvon, Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. It's a pleasure. Good afternoon. Thanks really, for having us. Really excited to have you both here. So I want to learn a little bit more about the James Webb Telescope. Kayvon, you can you really give us a brief breakdown of why it's more powerful than its predecessor, the Hubble Telescope? Absolutely. Uh, the first thing to say is that uh, what Caroline and you were talking about just a few minutes ago is one of the reasons that we put telescopes in space, mm -hmm. so that we get way above that night 
City Glow, uh, and we have clear views uh, across the universe. Uh, James Webb Space Telescope uh, is an astonishing technological achievement. Uh, you were just referring to the first images that were released uh, a little over a year ago. And of course, those images were spectacular. Maelstroms of gas and dust that stars are formed in and distant galaxies almost to the edge of the beginning of time. Uh, I will tell you what, what I'm most excited about is actually not the pictures, but the light spectra hmm. that the James Webb Space Telescope is capable of producing and gathering. And by light spectrum, I mean spreading the light that the telescope perceives, spreading it out into its constituent rainbow of colors, because we can use that information to do things like measure the atmospheres of other worlds far out in our galaxy. Wow. And we can talk more about that. Oh, yeah, we definitely will talk more about more about that. So how powerful is it? Like the type of images does it produce that go way beyond what the scientific community is accustomed to? I'll give you an analogy. Um, so I just referred to the light spectrum that the telescope can measure. So for the research that my team is doing and uh, that we were involved in in the first release of images from the telescope, uh, we wanted to measure the, 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 the chemical makeup of the air of another Earth-like world mm -hmm. uh, out in our galaxy. Uh, we knew where to point the telescope because using previous telescopes, we had discovered that there was a, a, a solar system there with an exoplanet orbiting that other sun. Here's the analogy I'll give you. Imagine uh, you're standing in Nashville with a camera and you point it to the west toward a spotlight in Los Angeles and buzzing around that spotlight is a fly. And you know that that fly is there because you previously uh, discovered it. Uh, but now you measure the, the fly when it's buzzing in front of the light and then again when it's buzzing behind the light. Hmm. And comparing those two pieces of information, you discover that there's water vapor on the back of the fly. Wow. That's an actual analogy to scale of what we're accomplishing with this incredible machine. This thing is incredibly powerful. So are you saying that we're only truly scratching the surface of what the telescope is capable of? Well, right. I mean, you know, for the very first uh, release of data and images, you know, we were going to go for the low-hanging fruit. Uh, and so along the, the exoplanet line of research, uh, what we want to push toward now is actually taking uh, pictures of, of Earth-like planets uh, next, to their, next to their suns. Mm -hmm. uh, and the ultimate dream is to be able to measure what we refer to as biosignatures, evidence of potential life uh, on another on another world out there, a place that humans might someday visit. Oh, wow. My curiosity is way up right now. Now, Steve, you were a part of a major research breakthrough regarding gravitational waves that basically proved Albert Einstein right. What was Einstein's prediction and what does this evidence tell us? Yeah. Um once again, Albert Einstein was correct, and we keep trying to prove him wrong, but 100 <laughs> years later, it's still correct. Um, so Einstein had this um, breakthrough in his time, understanding what gravity was, and gravity really being not a pulling force the way we used to think about it, the way Isaac Newton used to think about it, but more as a byproduct of the fact that space and time are stretching like mm. a trampoline. So if you put the sun 
or, you know, for our case, a bowling ball in the middle of a trampoline, that's going to curve space-time, and then you put a ping-pong ball on that, and it'll move around that, that curvy trampoline fabric. That's exactly what happens in space-time. But because you've got a stretchy fabric of space-time, you can warp it, you can make waves in that, and it's those waves of gravitational influence that Einstein predicted and 100 years later was proven correct by another collaboration called LIGO. And LIGO found, is finding many, many gravitational wave signals from colliding black holes. What we've done is find a new type of gravitational wave signal from the most massive black holes in the entire universe. Wow. So what's special about the new type of gravitational waves that you all have discovered? Yeah. So we, we always have thought and theorized that there are these gargantuan black holes that sit at the centers of galaxies, uh, kind of like a seed at the center of a piece of fruit. And um, these black holes can be billions, tens of billion times as big as the sun. Um, and galaxies actually often collide throughout the history of the universe. And those black holes can meet up and get together, orbit each other, and send out these waves of gravitational influence. And we found the first evidence uh, of those waves of gravitational influence, not just from one of these kind of dance of black holes, but of every dance of black holes throughout the universe. Wow, yeah. that's a lot. Now, I understand that you all used pulsars mm -hmm. to help with your calculations. First, explain to us what pulsars are. Pulsars are one of the most extraordinary type of objects in the entire universe. Um, uh, they, uh, to understand what a pulsar is, imagine taking the sun, squeezing that into something the size of a medium-sized city. Okay. Take that object, spin it hundreds of times a second, kind of like as fast as a kitchen blender, and then have it blast out beams of radio waves. That's a pulsar, and that's part of our detector. We use these things throughout the galaxy, kind of like cosmic lighthouses, because they spin and send out their beams of radio waves. Every time those beams hit the Earth, we measure a little radio pulse. Mm -hmm. Those radio pulses are like the ticking of a clock. And so every time the clock uh, ticks, we can measure how regular those pulsars are spread across our Milky Way galaxy. And if there's any tiny deviation, any tiny offset, you know, like your clock loses time, we can ascribe that to gravitational waves warping the entire galaxy itself. I'm curious about the instruments that you all use to get these very, very super fine calculations. Like, what are you using to measure a wave of gravity? Uh, for our case, we're using some of the best radio telescopes in the entire um, world to look at these pulsars all over the universe. Um, like the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, we also used to use the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico. That's most famous for having been in a couple of movies like Contact and okay. GoldenEye, the James Bond movie. Yeah. Um, but we use radio telescopes all over. Um, for LIGO, the, the first people to, to find gravitational waves, they built essentially the best ruler that humans have ever conceived of. Um, they can measure some kind of length changes smaller than the size of a proton. A laser ruler. Yeah, a laser ruler. And if you expand that up, what they're essentially doing is measuring the distance between Earth and the next star system over to an accuracy of the width of a human hair. Wow. The best rulers in the entire universe, as Abs far as we know. Absolutely. Now, you know, this seems to be an international effort in doing this research, right? Yeah, totally. Who else did you work with? We worked with collaborators um, in Europe. We, you know, I used to be in uh, the European collaboration. I come from the UK originally. 
Uh, we also have colleagues in Australia. We have colleagues in China, India, South Africa. So it really is a global effort. We're all working together. Now, you're the chair of the Nanograv Group. That's Tell right. us a little bit more about that group and what you all do there. So Nanograv is the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves. Nanohertz just means this is a really, really low-frequency, low-pitch signal that we've found. And uh, we're a collection of a bunch of universities and radio telescopes uh, and institutions that, um, that work together with almost 200 people. And we, we need to collect our knowledge, collect our analysis together, collect all of our observations. And it's not that one person could have done this. It really takes, um, it takes a village, as people usually say, to, to do this kind of thing and to achieve what no one in human history has done before. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about discoveries in space with astrophysicist Kayvon Stassen and Steven Taylor. If you have questions about our universe, tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, you know, Kayvon, you, your research has led you, you were talking about exoplanets yep. in your research. For people who don't know, what's an exoplanet? <laughs> An exoplanet is simply a planet, like our, like our own, that orbits another sun. Um, you know, it's incredible to me, you know, even just in our lifetimes. When I, was a, when I was a college student, there were eight planets that were known, uh, the eight planets of our solar system. Uh, now we've directly measured nearly 10,000, but more importantly, from, the, from a detailed analysis of the sort of the census and the demographics, if you will, of the planets that we know of, we can infer that on av the average star in our galaxy has at least one planet. Okay. And there are about 200 billion suns in our one galaxy. Wow. And about a trillion galaxies in the observable universe. There's a lot of planets out there. A lot of planets out <laughs> there. So there's a good chance that there could be potential Earth-like planets. Oh, we know for there. sure there are Earth-like planets, uh, and we know that they are in abundance in the hundreds of billions, literally. Now, what do you do? How do you detect these exoplanets out there? Yeah, so there's a couple of methods that astronomers use. Um, the method that I was referring to earlier with the fly around the spotlight is what we refer to as the transit method, meaning that uh, if a planet is orbiting its sun, and, and it just so happens that as seen by us from Earth, the planet passes directly in front of its sun as it orbits, the planet blocks a tiny, a tiny bit of that sun's light. Uh, but our, our instruments are so sensitive that we can detect that tiny dimming, if you will, of the, of the sun, mm -hmm. of that sun, by its Earth orbiting it. So we call that the transit method. Uh, there's another technique uh, sometimes referred to as the wobble method where um, uh, you know, a, a, a star holds its planets uh, in orbit by its gravity, and at the same time, Newton's third law, the planet yanks on the star in return. Mm -hmm. Not very hard, but it does. And we can measure very sensitively how a star uh, wobbles to and fro in response to the orbit of its planet. So that's so, another major method. So does that tell you how large the planet is and how close it is to its star in its orbit? Precisely. So with the combination of those methods, we can weigh a planet. Mm -hmm. We can measure its size, its diameter, basically. And if you know how much a planet weighs and you know what its diameter is, you can calculate its average density. Mm -hmm. 
And that's how we know whether a given planet is a big gas ball like Jupiter or a water world or a little rock like Earth. Can you tell if it's within the so-called Goldilocks zone? With oh, yes, star? absolutely. So uh, we can measure how far away from a star a given planet is. And we can measure very accurately the properties of the star in order to determine essentially what the planet is subjected to uh, from its star. Wow. Now, our closest star is the sun, <laughs> which has been around basically forever from our perspective. Talk to me about quickly about the life cycle of a star. Yeah. So um, stars are born and they live and they die. And a star okay. like our sun, um, well, our sun was born about four and a half billion years ago. We know that from the geological record. Uh, a star like our sun will live about 10 billion years. So our sun is middle-aged. Okay. You know, five and a half billion years to go. Uh, and when stars like our sun die, they die sort of gently. Um, they don't blow up, um, but they, um, they swell up to become extremely large. They become what we call red giant stars. Mm -hmm. Our sun, as it begins to die and swells up, uh, will engulf uh, the inner planets of our solar system. Um, the Earth will be incinerated. Gotcha. Um, and so, back to the quest to study, to find and study exoplanets and the potential for habitable other worlds, uh, five billion years from now, Khalil, Nashvillians are gonna need a place to go. Yeah. We are. And so that leads me to this question, Steve. You know, I'm a science fiction nerd and I want to know, can this discovery of gravitational waves, can that help lead the way to advances like space exploration? I'm talking about warp drives and wormholes. I wish. Um, uh, it's it's possible that this kind of research has applications further down the road than even we can imagine. And that's been true throughout the history of science. Um, when people first started looking at quantum theory and quantum mechanics, they had to use mathematical techniques that were just developed hundreds of years before without knowing what the direct application would be. So it's possible that this breakthrough in gravitational waves will help us learn more in the future. And certainly warp drive or certain types of warp drive, not out of the realm of possibility within, within science. And the same is true of wormholes. We don't know how we would do it. We don't know how we could build these things, but, you know, never say never. That's right. That's right. Now, I know that, like, when we look at these images, particularly from the James Webb Space Telescope, the further we look into the images of the universe, we're actually really looking back in time. <laughs> I'm curious, how do these gravitational waves affect time? They do cause a distortion in time. Um, we mostly notice the distortion in space, stretching and squeezing the fabric of space-time. Um, and it's mostly in how the lengths between objects change. So the detectors we use are based on gravitational waves stretching and squeezing the lengths between pulsars or between ends of a laser experiment. Um, so they do affect time a little bit, but that's mostly showing up close to the black holes themselves. You get these weird time distortions and redshifting effects. Okay, so now that you've made this discovery, what questions are you looking forward to answering? I really want to find one of these individual dances of black holes and start studying that in detail. Maybe even seeing gas swirling around there, so you've got light coming from it as well. Um, that's what we call multi-messenger astronomy, using gravity and light in tandem to, to do some really, really in-depth physics. Ultimately, I want to get all of the other black holes out of the way and start looking behind them and seeing back to the origins of the universe itself. Wow. Gravitational waves aren't they're really weak, they, they don't really interact, and it's difficult to find them, but that means we can see them back to the 
infinitesimal time just after the Big Bang, and we're limited in what we can see back to with light. Gravitational waves don't have those limitations. How do we see back to the origin of the universe? These gravitational waves are formed in kind of the, the maelstrom of conditions in the really early universe. We're talking, you know, a period of time that's less than a second. Actually, if you had zeros, it would be 34 zeros mm -hmm. after the decimal. That's how long after the Big Bang we could potentially see. Wow. Um, and uh, we can tell a lot about the universe given gravitational waves coming from that time. The conditions, what might have formed the, the universe to have a Big Bang singularity in the first place. We can tell a ton about what's going on. You know, okay, some people may not think of Nashville as the home for scientific discovery. A hot new artist, a hot new musician? Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. That's what we do, right? But tell me, what's the significance of this level of research coming from our city? I think Nashville uh, and Vanderbilt really uh, are world leaders in this type of science um, in trying to push astronomy beyond its frontiers, uh, looking at gravitational waves, looking at... Uh, exoplanets, we really punch above our weight. You might not know that it's going on in Nashville, but it really is, and we're leading these world efforts. That's really awesome. Steve's that being modest, I have to say. Okay. When, the, when the big international announcement was made of the discovery of these gravitational waves from the nanograv experiment, it was Professor Taylor making that announcement to the world. All right. Thanks for boasting so I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what did it feel like for you when the news hit, Steve? Um, incredible. Um, we've been working on these results for three years. It started mostly during the pandemic when we were in quarantine conditions. And um, it's been a lot of slow, methodical, really careful work. And it was such a relief to be able to announce this um, just, just a few weeks ago. So I'm relieved, I'm ready to enjoy the rest of my summer, but then excited to get going again. I hear there's a special person that moviegoers would be interested in who was a part of that announcement. Yeah. Um, so Professor Kip Thorne uh, at Caltech, he was one of the founding fathers of gravitational wave theory. Um, he's done a lot of work at Caltech and, um, you know, understanding these different types of experiments. And he wrote the original screenplay for the movie Interstellar and was a key mm. part of getting that movie made. Um, he's had an interest in gravitational waves and our experiment for a long time. And he joined us on stage to make that announcement. He was thrilled with the news. Interstellar is one of my favorites. Mine too. I'm sure a lot of people out there. Now, Kayvon, talking about the James Webb Telescope, this is the top dog mm -hmm. in space exploration and research. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people are looking to get specific images to aid them in their work. How did you go about requesting the telescope capture an image from a particular region in the cosmos. Do you have to like take a number and wait? <laughs> uh, well, you have to you have to make a really compelling proposal to NASA. Uh, is the short answer. Um, in the year or so uh, prior to the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, NASA put out a, a call for proposals. In other words, said, "Hey, uh, world, um, astronomers out there, send us your best ideas." Um, specifically for good low-hanging fruit discoveries that we think we can make during the first year, right? Because, you know, we want to we demonstrate the capabilities of this incredible machine. Uh, we want to capture the imagination of the public, all that stuff. Uh, and so um, my research team here uh, in Nashville uh, was a part of one of the successful proposals, specifically, as I was talking about earlier, uh, to measure the light spectra of the atmospheres of some of the planets that we know about. Where is the telescope positioned in space? How far away from Earth is it? So, um, and I'm going to ask my, my friend here to help me out with this uh, because it's, it's, it's weird, okay? Okay. Um, so the telescope orbits... 
an imaginary point in space, basically. Hmm. So it's beyond the moon, and it orbits uh, a point that we call L2, this, which, which is shorthand for the second Lagrange point. All right. And it is a funny uh, consequence of... Um, uh, so uh, Steve was talking about how gravity, you know, massive objects on, in space-time kind of, you know, distort the shape of space. Uh, and because of the particular positioning and alignment of the sun and the earth and the moon, uh, there are these points in space that an object can orbit even though there's nothing there. Wow. That is so cool. It's a really stable point. Uh, it's, it's fantastic they will put the telescope there. Okay. Now, Steve, i got to ask you this. Were you, you study black holes. You're turning your attention to black holes and things. Were you a fan of the old school film Black Hole? I, you know, I've never seen the old school <laughs> film Black Hole, but I have seen, you know, I'm a huge Star Wars and Star Trek nerd. I've, I've followed it for years, um, but I haven't seen that movie. Okay, so I'm going to cue something up for him then since he hasn't seen it. Okay. So the big problem with that movie, which I saw as a little kid, is that, of course, the black hole is like this, is depicted as this like vacuum cleaner that just <laughs> sucks everything in. Dispel that myth. Um, yeah, a black hole is not is not any scarier than another type of star of the same size or mass. And so, you know, it, it, this idea that it's really, um, you know, it's a black maw that's going to suck up everything is a, is a common myth. If you replace the sun with a black hole of, of a similar mass, nothing would change. The earth, wow. the sun, the, the earth, the planets would still orbit. I mean, there'd be no heat coming. Yeah. So everything, everything would, uh, would die on earth. And um, all the other planets would suffer those effects as well. But gravity, gravity doesn't uh, care about those things. Would there be time dilation? There would be time dilation if you could get super close to the black hole. Yeah, and that's three, something three that kilometers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to thank you. Now I'm going to sleep much better. <laughs> and no more bad dreams about getting sucked into a black hole. Stephen Taylor is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy at Vanderbilt and the chair of the Nanograv Group. Steve, thanks so much for being Thank with you. us today. Kayvon Stassen will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll talk with the next generation of astrophysicist researchers and learn about the behaviors of massive black holes. Have a question about black holes? You can tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. As humans, we have looked to the stars to gain an understanding of who we are and our place in the universe. Over centuries, the knowledge has been passed down from generation to generation, scientist to scientist. There would be no Neil deGrasse Tyson if there was no Carl Sagan. Young Minds Inspired by Old Ones is the way we all can learn more about the cosmos. My next guests are two young researchers at Vanderbilt University who are a part of the next wave of astrophysicists here in Nashville. Polina Petrov studies supermassive black holes and Keyshawn Ivory studies galaxy dynamics and black hole mergers. Polina, Keyshawn, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Really excited to have you both here. Now, Polina, you were a part of the gravitational research project that we talked about before the break. Tell me, what was that experience like for you? 
Um, it was kind of surreal. I, I kind of jumped into it while, you know, the discovery was kind of in motion. Um, so just being able to contribute a little bit uh, of work to that was exciting. And um, actually seeing how all of the parts come together and seeing everyone work as a team to make this happen was really cool. Now, you said you were contributed just a little bit. Tell me, what was your role in the research? Um, so my role was uh, just kind of analyzing the data a little bit. Um, you know, as Steve mentioned, we get this data from these uh, pulses of pulsars. Um, so just kind of uh, looking at the data and kind of disentangling our signal from, you know, all of this data that we get. How much data did you have to pour through? Um, so this was 15 years worth of data, so Ooh. quite a lot, yeah. Quite a lot. That was in the form of spreadsheets, calculations. What was it? Um, so not quite spreadsheets, but we have, uh, I guess, kind of specific files that we use, and uh, we have a, a software that we use to go through this data and find the signal. So, yeah. How long did it take? 15 years. That's a long time. Right. A lot of stuff to look through. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Now, Keishan, you study black holes, and but you do it in a particular way. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so Steve had mentioned black holes at the centers of galaxies and the way that galaxies can merge and then the black holes themselves can also merge. So kind of zooming into that a little bit, a lot of the time what happens is one of the galaxies will be smaller than the other one, so it's kind of orbiting. So we call that a satellite galaxy. And so um, it, it happens that the orbital dynamics, so the way that the satellite is orbiting with respect to the, the larger central galaxy, can have an impact on how long it actually takes for those black holes to merge. And so my sort of angle that I'm looking at mergers is um, thinking about the orbital dynamics of those satellite galaxies and, and trying to get a sense of how long the merger should take. How long does it take? That is a great question. If I had that answer, I'd be done with the PhD. But um, so uh, my advisor, um, Kelly Holly Balkman, has modeled some of these, and they get answers from like ten million years up to more like a billion years, just kind of depending on the specifically the rotation of the satellite, whether mm -hmm. it's rotating with or kind of against the current of the stars in the center of the merged galaxy so now paint a picture for me we got two galaxies with black holes in them mm -hmm. what happens when they merge together that's a great question so i i think a lot of people when they hear like merger or collision might think a very sort of violent process of stars like running into each other but the truth is there's so much space between stars that that typically doesn't really happen it's more like think of it as just a galaxy with, say, 100 billion stars becoming a merged galaxy with, like, 200 billion stars. It's okay. just more more things, more stuff. But with regard to the black holes themselves, that process is a very interesting and dynamic process wherein the, the way to think about it is as the black holes are getting closer to one another, what's happening is energy is being sort of sapped from the orbit to bring them closer together. And so what what we're doing a lot of thinking about is what is the main mechanism by which that energy is being sapped at the various stages of the merger. Um, and where I'm looking very specifically is when those two black holes get close enough that uh, there's like basically collisions with stars in that, in that central region mm -hmm. that are sapping energy from the orbit. And um, those dynamics, that rotation has an impact on in the end, whether the merger happens at all or how long it takes. Uh, how do you get this information? What do you use? So I use all simulations. I'm a, a total theory person. I don't look at any real galaxies ever. Okay. Um, they all live in a box in my computer. So I 
look at simulations uh, to get a sense of what we're trying to do is get a sense of the distributions of, of these orbital properties of satellites. Um, and so that's kind of the, the angle that we use to tackle it is all simulated, like a simulated universe in a box, basically. All right. Now, Kate. Galaxies and black holes. In, in a computer. Okay. And then studying how they how they evolve. Yeah. Now, Kayvon, Kayvon Stassen, for the audience uh, from Vanderbilt is still with us. These are some pretty impressive young people and young minds. You have no idea. How does that make you feel about the future of astrophysics? Oh, my God. Um, I have to say, it, it, is, it is hard to, and I, and I don't say this in a self-congratulatory way. I just, I think people, you know, deserve to understand what an investment it, it is from our educational system. I mean, right? I mean, these folks, you know, from kindergarten through PhD are going through a process of education and learning and learning facts, but most importantly, learning how to think and learning what the process of discovery uh, is. And so uh, I'm not going to ask what their ages are, but you know, I mean, they're, they're going on 30. <laughs> and I mean, that's how long it takes to get to the point that you can apply your mind, that you can build galaxies in a, in a computer, that you can analyze millions of numbers uh, mm -hmm. to sniff out the little s patterns and signals. Um, uh, so, you know, people need to understand that's what it, that's what it takes. And that's the sort of the, the level and the quality and the impressiveness of mind that you're looking at. Here. Yet yeah, another the future reason, for astrophysics is in good hands. It's yet another reason why we should support, should support STEM within all schools, right? Absolutely. I mean, this doesn't happen without that. That's right. Now, Paulina, in addition to, addition to gravitational waves, you study supermassive black holes, right? Right. Okay. So when we say supermassive black holes, how big are they? Give us some scale. So supermassive black holes are, uh, you know, Black holes that have a mass that are millions to billions uh, times the mass of our own sun. So wow. very, very massive. <laughs> okay. So how far apart are they? Um, they can be, um, you know, the, the ones that I'm specifically looking at are pretty far apart. Um, the scales that we use are parsecs. So um, that can roughly be about a light year. So the distance that it takes for light to travel one year. Um, so the, the supermassive black holes that we look at are less than uh, a light year apart, less than a parsec apart. So how long do you think it will take them to collide? Um, you know, also on the scale of like millions to billions of years, okay. probably. Nothing that we're going to see. So tell me, what do you hope to learn from observing them? Um, you know, I think it'd be really interesting to learn about just the environments that they live in. We don't have a good sense of, um, you know, how they interact with the galaxies that they live in. Um, so that is something that we could potentially learn about. Um, and, you know, also potentially how they grow. Um, black holes can grow in mass and we don't have a good sense of that either. So... That's something that we could learn as well. Right. But just to clarify, we do see them collide. Uh, we won't see that spe that specific one collide because it'll take a million years. Mm -hmm. But there's billions of these things in the universe. So at any given time, it's happening. We see a collision. Now, there's a collision I heard about that our Milky Way galaxy is on a crash course yeah. with the nearest galaxy Andromeda. And there's black holes at the center of each. Keyshawn, tell us what will happen... <laughs> 
when that collision takes place billions of years from now. Yeah, so I'm um, kind of sad I won't see it because then I could use the, the algorithm I'm making to see how <laughs> correct PhD I got the time done scale. done a little bit quicker. <laughs> um, uh, but essentially, so the first bit that happens is the actual galaxy merger part. So that's kind of what I was saying earlier about basically you just get a bunch more stars in this new sort of, I guess, milky Andromeda way okay. thing. Um, so that's the first bit. And then, uh, so let's say we want to go all the way to the black hole merger. The next thing that needs to happen is that the, the black holes need to fall to the center of this new merged object. So that bit actually kind of takes a while. It can take like a few million years even just for them to fall to the center. And so, again, what we're thinking about here is what is the mechanism by which energy is kind of being taken out of the orbit to bring them closer. Mm-hmm. And at, at this stage, it's something that's called dynamical friction, which is basically the idea of sort of like a almost like a wake, like a boat going through water has a wake behind it, mm-hmm. that, but like it's gravity. So like wow. you have black holes moving through this gravitational field, inducing a kind of wake that kind of takes energy out of the orbit. And that's what makes them get closer together at first. Um, and then after a while of that kind of evolution, they get close enough that the main thing taking the energy out is those stellar interactions. So bumping into stars and exchanging energy with them, um, that helps bring them closer. And then in that last final bit, we get into what, Paulina and Steve um, are worrying about, and that's gravitational waves, All which right. are sapping that last little bit of energy to to make them finally merge. But Kishan, won't our sun potentially get like splashed out into intergalactic space? If it's if it's not done the the whole red giant white dwarf death thing, uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's possible. Well, what's going to happen first, the the red giant white dwarf death or this merger with Andromeda? So the time scale, I, it seems to be kind of similar. So actually, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of up for de- up for debate which one is going to hit first. Okay, I'd love to see it, but uh, we'll be long gone. That would really be cool. Now, I really understand you just won an award for the organization Black in Astro. Tell me briefly about that. Yeah, of course. Um, Black in Astro is it's a real passion project of ours. So it's a grassroots organization that my friend Ashley Walker founded in 2020, kind of in the zeitgeist um, after the murder of George Floyd. We were having this moment. We were all kind of at home in the pandemic, like really reflecting and thinking. And I think all kinds of different fields ask themselves, like, what do black people in this field need? And in astronomy, that took the shape of black and astro. And so um, that first year, Ashley basically used that time to highlight black astronomers and astrophysicists to kind of say, hey, we're out here, we exist, our numbers might be kind of few, but we're here. And then in the time since then, she's kind of formalized it into more of um, an organization that does programming, usually the week of always the week of Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. We have a solid week of programming called Black Space Week where we put together panels and all these virtual events on Zoom. And um, she asked me and other friends of hers to be a part of it. And so I've been a part since 2021. And we just won the Annie Maunder Medal for Outreach from the Royal Astronomical Society. And I got to actually travel to Cardiff, Wales in the UK a couple weeks ago to go receive it. It was amazing. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Congrats, congrats. Now, Polina, tell me real briefly, how does having a diverse group of researchers, how does that benefit the scientific community? Um, I think it's, uh, you know, it comes down to everybody kind of coming into the field with their own experiences, um, you know, a unique um, way of approaching uh, the science that we do. Um, so it's it's nice to be able to kind of come in with a diverse group of ideas and experiences rather than just having everyone who, you know, looks the same or has the same idea, um, has the same experience. Um, I think it really 
shapes the whole community rather than just having kind of one singular experience. It opens up science to more minds so we can make more discoveries so eventually we can have space travel. <laughs> I really appreciate all of you being here and for enlightening us. And thank you for all the amazing, fantastic, wonderful work that you all are doing. I want to thank my guests, Vanderbilt grad students, Keyshawn Ivory and Polina Petroff. They were joined by Kayvon Stossen, professor of physics and astronomy at Vanderbilt. Again, thanks to you all for being with us today. Great really pleasure. appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Okay, y'all, it's Friday. So now I usually take a ride with one of our fellow Middle Tennesseans, but this time things are a little different. A question I've always been fascinated with is, are we alone in the universe? My answer is a resounding no but I wanted to find out what other people think. So I hopped into the car and headed out to Madison. There, I met Larry Miller and rising eighth grader Mario Wingfield. And in East Nashville, I spoke with second grader Agnes Whitney. Strap in, the starship is about to take off. Personal opinion uh, would be to quote the movie Contact, if there isn't intelligent life out there somewhere, it's an awful waste of space. You know, so. I agree with you, because the universe is so vast. Have you ever thought about making contact with an intelligent life form from another planet? I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with them, sure, but I imagine that, you know, if they were gonna reach out and contact somebody and on the planet Earth, it wouldn't be a lonely shopkeep. I mean, but, 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 but why not, though? I mean, yeah, you could go to the leaders of the Earth and what have you, but what better way to get an idea of Earthlings and humans than coming to Comic City? Than just, uh, you know, random selection. Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> you I know? mean, that'd be the way for me. Uh, you know, if there was somebody out there, they probably would be. You know, if I was going to visit a foreign world, mm -hmm. I'm sure I would monitor their communication, their TV or their radio or look yeah. for other forms of entertainment just to get a vibe of a yeah. feel. Yeah. Our TV signals go out into space. Our radio goes out into space. Yep. Uh, Think about that. They have an idea of what we listen to and what we watch. They get everything from really great classic programs, Star Trek and things. They're like, oh, they might be ready, but then they see reality TV and they decide to take a U-turn yeah, and they get yeah, to the solar yeah, system. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, as some people joke, aliens might drive by and lock their doors. You know yeah. what I mean? I think they may. <laughs> what do you think they could potentially look like. It would depend on the environment they evolved in. You know, they might look somewhat similar, but that's kind of vain for humans to assume that. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's incredibly I vain. Mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, because yeah. what would it be like to go on a date with an alien? Like a really attractive alien. Potentially they're a shapeshifter, you know? They're like, hey. Yeah, well, if they're a shapeshifter, would you ever see their real... There'd be like a, a major trust issue. It's like, yeah. how would you ever know this is really them? Yeah, you you're know? right, huh? <laughs> I guess you'd have to meet their family. I'm Mario Wingfield. Word, how old are you? 13, I just turned 13. Just turned 13, congratulations, man. Have you ever given thought to like, there's other life forms outside of life on Earth? Yeah, I'll be watching videos about it, yeah. What kind of videos? Like videos of UFOs and abductions and stuff like that. How'd you feel when you saw those? I mean, I thought it was really cool. A lot of the times in the movies, they're like, hey, aliens are coming to take us all out. But the aliens could come and hook us up, right? 
Exactly. You can get cool superpowers. You know what I mean? Superpowers. <laughs> All right, so what kind of superpowers would you want from the aliens? Invisibility. Invisibility? Why? I don't know. I think it's just cool. And, like, you can prank people without them knowing it's you. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. My name is Agnes Whitley. How old are you, Agnes? Seven. Do you believe in aliens? Yes. You do? What, when you think about aliens, what comes to mind? Hmm. I think they're, like, green, and they live on the moon, probably. Yeah. yeah. Well, what do you think they do on the moon? Probably just when people go there, they just scare them off. They scare people off of the moon? Why would they scare people away from them? Well, so they can maybe protect the moon, make sure uh, well, they won't fall in black holes. What's your favorite planet besides Earth? Uh, Jupiter. Me too. Would you want to go visit the sun, maybe? Nope. Why not? Because I'll be dead by then. Oh, because it's so hot? What if you could visit the sun in a spaceship that protected you from the heat? Uh, yeah, I'll go in the very middle of the sun. The very middle of the sun. You want to mm. see what it's like? Mm-hmm. It's probably bright. You'd have to wear... Like the biggest sunglasses ever made. Yeah. Well, do you think we'll ever meet aliens someday? Probably no. No? They're a little bit scared to come down to Earth because they know there's people down there. But there's nice people like you and me. Mm-hmm. They probably will be scared. Maybe. Like, um... Like bunnies, they think we're going to attack them, but we're not. Yeah. Well, I see. Riding Shotgun is supported by Xander Insurance. Thank you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by our senior producer, Steve Harouche. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. Be good to each other.